Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Business of Freelancing podcast. This week, we'll be talking about disasters, consulting failures that we've had, and how you can avoid them in your own work. On our panel this week is Jeremy Green. Hey, everybody. And Eric Dietrich. Hi, everyone. And Kai Davis. Hey there. And I'm Reuven Lerner. So this week, we're going to talk about failures we've had in our consulting careers, not just because they make for amusing stories, but because hopefully they can be lessons that you, dear listener, will avoid in the future. So has anyone ever had a problem, a failure at work? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I can think of a couple projects where either expectations were off of alignment or we thought, hey, we're going to turn to the right here and get to where we're going. And then we ended up in like a completely different spot. The best one I could think of is back in the old days when I basically was a freelancer doing a WordPress marketing things. And I ended up connecting with a pet, like a startup-y, bootstrap-y, they're making dog biscuits with CBD in Portland and they needed a website. And so we started off, we we were like in alignment. Okay, you need a site. These are the products. You got me the images. We moved forward with it. And then about four days before final delivery of the project, they said, hey, so we're doing the e-commerce thing. Can you make it so we just have local delivery right now? We don't want to ship it out of state or out of Portland. Can you make it so just people in Portland can order from us? Yeah, probably, I said. Okay, but can you make sure only people within a 25-mile radius of our house can order from us? I think <laughs> I can. Cue basically 40 hours of me trying to hack WordPress with a machete to do it, oh, getting no. my buddy involved, and like it just went completely pear-shaped. At the end, we figured out a solution. They were satisfied. I still had some blood left in my body. But looking back on it, to me, it really is a lesson in the importance of both confirming scope initially and saying, okay, we're doing A, B, and C and only A, B, and C. And further on in the project, it's things like, hey, just allow people in our neighborhood to order from us, pop up, push back and say, well, hey, I understand that as a feature. That wasn't what we thought of in the scope initially. So let's have that as a second phase, but wrap this one up first. How about you guys? Yeah, I've definitely had projects go way wrong. And much like you, Kai, it's often about misaligned expectations uh, and poor communication uh, from my side or my agency's side. Um, probably the worst one that I ever had was about four and a half or five years ago. Um, I had been on a, a kind of a long-term contract with a company that had wound down. And so I found myself in a spot with no work and I hadn't been really working a, a pipeline or anything. So I was kind of in a, a hard spot. Like I didn't need the work that day, but with in the absence of other prospects, I just kind of thought, yeah, why not? It's some work. It, it came from somebody that was a contact in the local tech scene uh, who, in my mind, I kind of slotted into the, oh, this is a project with a friend bucket. And it, he was really an acquaintance, and I gave him too much credit for being a friend and gave him too many benefits of the doubt on scoping the project. And, like, it was a thing where they had – they told me that we have these new features mostly built They're all but ready to go. They're behind a feature flag. We need, and our our developer left suddenly, and we need somebody that can do the final UI polish on these things and turn off the feature flag to get them into production. I 
proposed that we do a uh, an like exploratory session where I would review the code base, you know, look at the state it was in. They said, oh no, we don't want to, we're not going to do that. We're not going to pay for that. Let's just go straight to work. I should have pushed back on that. That was like one red flag that, you know, my bad, I screwed that up. So I got into it really not knowing what I was getting into. And I tried to make clear that, hey, look, if there's more to do here than what you've described to me, we're going to have to come back and revisit this contract. And it's, going to be more work and you're going to have to pay for that. And they said, oh, yeah, sure, of course, we would expect that. I did not insist on that caveat being in the contract that I signed, which was another uh, failure on my part. So I get in and start looking and it turns out these features do not exist. The feature flag for the features exists and it's hiding a button for where the feature, the entry point for the feature should be, but none of the rest of the feature exists. No UI for it, no backend, like nothing. And so I try immediately to raise like, hey, this is not gonna work. Uh, we need to renegotiate a new contract. They pushed back real hard and said, no, you signed a contract that said you would deliver these features. And we went round and round. They had paid for the whole project up front. We went round and round. I tried to get new work authorized. Uh, you know, I had done some work trying to work towards the features just in good faith, had committed that code and pushed it so they had access to it. Uh, and finally, ultimately, when we couldn't work anything out, I had to refund the entire $16,000 project fee and just say, look, I'm sorry, I can't help you. This is more than we had agreed upon. And it's going to take way too much time for me to build these features from scratch that you had not, you know, that you had told me were mostly done. Uh, and so it went from being four or five or six weeks estimate of getting this thing done to, yeah, I, I honestly have no idea. You're asking me to integrate with this external system that I don't know anything about. So I finally just had to walk away, uh, give them back all their money and say, okay, I'm out. And that was a very painful series of lessons to learn in a very short amount of time. But a lot of it was entirely my fault for just completely mismanaging communication leading up to the project. Self-inflicted. <laughs> Don't do what I did. Learn from my mistakes. <laughs> Eric, you have any horror stories to share? Not really. Interestingly, not... Um not in my capacity as a freelancer or business owner. And I have some thoughts on why that is that maybe we could delve into in a little bit. Um, but I could, going back to my salaried employment days where I worked for an app dev agency, custom app dev agency, there were any number there. Um, and they usually kind of all involved the standard thing, which is there's some piece of custom app dev work. Um, the client solicits uh, bids or gets an RFP the firm I was working for goes out, provides estimates, but says, hey, this is time and materials. And then it was always some variant of, uh, we go way beyond the estimate. The client gets in increasingly unhappy about that because, you know, in spite of the amount that that agency would kind of poo-poo clients for doing this, they take the estimates as kind of commitments, which is actually quite understandable. So inevitably it was, we're way over the estimate. Why are we over the estimate? Uh, why haven't we completed the work, what are we going to do to mitigate it? And then there's always this increasing like tail off of kind of mutual risk where you as this, this agency start to uh, write off hours or discount hours. And so 
there you are working together. It's costing the client more money they, than they anticipated. And every incremental hour that you're working as the agency is getting closer and closer to having no margin. And so everybody's just super unhappy. And I think like across the board, there is no better recipe for projects going horribly wrong than that. Um, which maybe at times, I mean, not every agency, uh, everything that agency did went poorly, but I saw enough of them to see that like the larger the scope, the more likely that outcome was. Um, even if you kind of had milestones where you were checking in at, there was always the tendency to say like, well, even though we're a quarter of the way to where we should be done and we don't feel like we've made that progress, we think we can make it up in the, in the last three quarters or the last half. Uh, me personally, as a freelancer, as a business owner, I've had contentious situations with clients, but nothing that I would say has gone horribly wrong. It's more that early in discovery or in the beginning of working together, I realize this isn't a fit, you know, here's your money back or don't pay me, never mind, bye. I wouldn't really, I mean, that's a bummer, but I wouldn't really consider it horribly wrong. So there's been a shift in the way I do things, which, you know, maybe I can talk about in a bit, but um, all of my experience with projects really going off the rails were when there were these long feedback loops based on estimates where it would be months or even years before you realize that things were really uh, going to be misaligned in terms of expectations. So I'll, I'll tell my own, uh, one of my many, I just was just writing down a whole bunch of different possible tales of woe I could share. We'll see how many I can get to during this podcast. But, you know, you do this long enough and you definitely end up with a large collection of them. So perhaps the most extreme one was, it was probably already like close to 20 years ago. Um, I was about to leave my home office along with an employee to go to a meeting and I get a phone call. Is this Reuven Lerner? Yes. Do you work on Linux administration? Yes, at that point I did. Oh boy, we could really use your help. We've got a real emergency going on here. I said, well, I'm on my way to a meeting. Turns out that the meeting was pretty close to where they were. So after the meeting, meeting probably ended around 3 p.m. I went over to their offices and they were actually in a server farm underground in some sort of basement somewhere. Um, and so we go in there and they explained to me that their sysadmin uh, just up and left them and they're totally stuck and the system is down and would I be able to get them out of this jam? I said, of course, I want to help you. And my employee and I sat around and worked on it for about two, three hours. Um, and then my employee actually had to go home. So I stayed around and pulled an all-nighter, um, helping them fixed everything, got the server up and running, fantastic. They were delighted, they were ecstatic. I get home, um, this was in the day be days before cell phones, so I explained where I had been. Uh, by the way, that was a secondary mistake, don't do that. Um, <laughs> I told my wife and kids where I'd been all night, um, you know, working on the server thing. In any event, the next few days, they continued to ask us for questions, we continued to fix their server, all was fantastic until we invoiced them. And we invoice them and no response. Not a no, not a yes, um, no response. Tried again. Oh, yeah, the, we're, we're going to send the check soon. Tried again. And finally, we started to get a little firmer with them. And this was, again, in the days of like fax machines. So they said, oh, you have fax? We'll fax you something. And what they faxed was a letter saying, Reuven Lerner is a cheater and a fraud and nearly destroyed our servers, and we are gonna sue you for damages to what you've done to our system, and it was only thanks to our CEO stopping you from doing terrible things that we managed to stop this. Um, to say that I was shaking and crying does not do justice to my reaction in getting this fax. I'd never received anything, anything like this before. I quickly understood uh, that their previous sysadmin had not just up and left them, but had also probably been stiffed. 
so I, I would say there's some commonalities here between certainly what I went through here and what Kai and Jeremy went through. Um, and to a certain degree, Eric, which is, I mean, it's all, it all comes down to communication with the client. All comes down to being like crystal clear communication expectations. But that incident led me to think, okay, if I have an airtight contract, if I make sure before I go somewhere and I have a contract, I will never have these problems again. And I think, tell me what you guys think. Oh. In terms of the my, <laughs> right, my guess is it will be better, right? right. But, but it will not reduce the risk to zero. Um, thoughts. The, the most easy way that could go wrong that I could think of is I was talking to a business owner recently who was saying that he disproportionately catered to startups. And um, what he had started doing was having an attorney that structured an arrangement so that he could pierce the corporate veil if need be, because these were like pre-funding startups. And I guess one game that they would run is engage with vendors and then say, well, uh, if, you know, if, the, if their business wasn't working out, I guess I'm bankrupt now and there's no business anymore for you to sue. So it was kind of like they could engage with vendors and then not really have to pay these obligations if they just went out of business. And so I mentioned that to say like one way that even with the best contract you can imagine is if the company you're engaged with is circling the drain and then they go out of business, like good luck with that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being in exactly the same position thinking all I need is a really good contract and master services agreement and I'll get something that's just airtight and then I'll, I'll be set and nobody will ever be able to cheat me or rip me off again and then realize that it's really not about the legalese that you bring into play. It's about having clear, honest communication with people that you feel you can trust and that you think are engaging in good faith and legalese can't help you find any of those things really. Uh, I mean, it, it might in some cases, but it's really more about having good communication with the client and good open channels. And I don't know, it's, it's hard. <laughs> I did a project a few years ago. It's probably like five, six years ago already with some lawyers, helping them put up a website for like lawyer stuff. And obviously there were contracts involved and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, the problems that we had had nothing to do with the contract. The problems had to do with the fact that their project manager inside of this legal e-corporation, as it were, um, they kept saying, no, you need to do everything we want for a flat fee, or our definition of bug fix is ad infinitum. And that wasn't specified anywhere in the contract. Maybe that was my mistake, maybe that was their mistake, but like basically, there was just miscommunication. At the end of the day, there was no good faith. It had nothing to do with anything else. They were like, no, you owe this to us and you're just being petty. And I said to them, basically the same thing. Um, and they paid us in the end, but it was very, very frustrating. And neither of us wanted to continue working together. Kai, you had mentioned with this, like this, I guess it was Dog Biscuits Company, mm -hmm. that you had some like miscommunication on the, like, the ge geography stuff at the beginning. But it sounds like it worked out in the end. It sounds like you were able to like patch over these differences. Did you continue working with them at all afterwards? No, there was no repeat project there. Uh, it, we were able to figure it out. They moved on. I moved on. It uh, definitely wasn't a, oh gosh, the plane has crashed into a mountain, worst case scenario or terribly wrong project. But it was one that, especially at the time, I was like 22, senior year of college, I think, or super senior year. And entering something like that with the energy was like, what the fuck do I do here? I don't know how to move this forward. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, 
experiences like we've all shared here and like mine in particular and other client interactions that come to mind really are what have moved me down the path of saying, hey, an initial paid project, be it a discovery project, a roadmap, something else, just a smaller scope project with some money attached. So you can say, okay, how do we work together as client and contractor or freelancer and consultant? What are the issues? What are the pluses? Maybe you start off and you're like, oh, it's probably be terrible communication. And then two weeks into that initial project, it's like, oh, whoa, this is moving better than I thought. So I really advocate for that initial paid project just as a way to see like, let's sniff each other's butt. How do they work? How do I work? How do we work together? Is this a good relationship? Sometimes I get to the end of that first project and I say, okay, this went terribly. We got to the objective, but it cost me, you know, another gray hair. Let's just end here and recommend them to another provider. Or maybe the project didn't turn out. Let's refund that initial paid project and move on the wiser for having tried it. It feels like a safe way to move forward as you either worry about or experience some of these negative situations. But uh, one thing that comes to mind even within that is there's definitely an element of confidence in our own skills or our business skills here. We need to be confident in ourselves to advocate for, hey, this is out of scope or that wasn't in the contract. Let's have a bigger conversation or, oh, your expectations on timeline or features or whatever, completely out of whack with what I thought we were entering into. But it's easy to say you should have these types of conversations. It's a lot harder to internally feel like you are confident enough or capable enough to go into that conversation and move towards the outcome you're looking for. So like uh, along those lines, what I was saying before about the reason I think I haven't encountered since leaving like the custom app dev salaried world, um, I haven't encountered what I would describe as these like huge um, project going off the rails like miscommunication misses is because there's a handful of things I do that rightly or wrongly, I think de-risk in a lot of ways. One of the big things is I tend to bill at a minimum 50% upfront, um, usually 100% for things that I'm doing. Uh, number two, Kai, as you were saying, usually the thing I pick to engage with initially is something that's low enough in price that even if it goes wrong and we discover in the course of a few weeks or whatever it's gonna take, uh, that it's just a horrible fit, I just send them a refund and, and that's it. So until I'm sure it's going to work, I put that money aside, don't depend on it in any way. Um, another thing that I'm generally doing is like flat pricing everything in some way and making scope and deliverables clear in the statement of work or proposal that I do. So all of those things kind of add up to whatever may go wrong. And I have had some you know, clients that I fired. I have had some complete like relationship non-fits, but I don't really consider them a project gone horribly wrong. It's just almost like instead of in the initial sales call, slightly after that, I discovered this isn't a fit. Um, and I didn't really learn that all at once. I kind of stumbled into it in some ways for me, luckily in that uh, there were like near misses that could have been bad situations, like a client that uh, I was doing some custom work for early on in my freelancing that racked up like a $50,000 bill that was still outstanding. And they did eventually pay me. But I started to think in terms of what on earth am I going to do if they don't pay me because this is very important. And, um, and I didn't know. I didn't have a good answer. If they had just said, nope, we're not paying you, I just would have lost you know, a decent chunk of the year's income. So luckily, I didn't get burned that way. But I kind of learned, like, okay, how do I de-risk this? Let's get payment up front. Um, let's quote things in a very clear way. Let's build on small wins. Uh, so I think all of that has been helpful. I love that as a framework. One thing that comes to mind through what you just shared is to, to succeed as in the business of freelancing, you don't want to avoid all, like projects that go wrong in some shape or fashion. 
they're really learning experiences. Like for all of us, we would not know how to communicate or set expectations or, hey, you should charge up front if we hadn't been through situations where we let the client get ahead of us on billing or we found ourselves at an impasse where we thought the scope was A and they thought the scope was B. It, it's a teachable moment. I, I think one of the reasons that um, I've been so happy moving into training over the last decade or so is that I decided I was just sort of fed up with these sorts of things. And maybe it reflects my negotiation skills and the sorts of clients I was getting, and I could definitely improve on that. But at the end of the day, um, offering a fixed price per day and you know fixed sort of scope thing, basically productizing my consulting as courses um, allowed me to avoid a whole lot of that. Now, I still have conversations with people. I mean, my favorite one is they'll say, oh, but our people are very smart, so they can do a four-day course in three days. And I have to explain to them, no, that's actually not possible. But as you were saying, Kai, like I've, I've gained um, not only experience, but confidence over the years to be able to say to these Fortune 100 companies, no, I actually know better than you do. You can't do this in three days, but we can reduce scope. And um, it took me a long time to get to that point because for a heck of a long time, I was saying, oh, yes, I'll do whatever you want, because clearly you're the big company and you're the client. I must please you. I must accept what you say. Yeah, I, I strongly agree with that. Uh, uh, recognizing in the moment that we are the specialist, we are the external consultant or freelancer, we are the person coming in to solve the problem they don't know how to solve, especially when it's a larger client and you're like, oh, my, my bill is one one hundredth of a percent of the revenue in a week or a month. It's, it's hard to balance there, but exactly to your point, like that inner fire gets stoked with time and you realize, oh, even if I'm saying, yo, the process you've been following for months or years, we can't do it that way. It's what we need to say as that external consultant to make sure the project we're working on goes in the right direction. Yeah, one thing that I've learned um, gradually over the course of years that, that I find really valuable is, I think I was talking to a sales consultant recently, I'm trying to remember how he put it because it was really artful, but it was something like, in your sales conversation, one of the two of you is going to explain how the engagement is going to work and the other one is going to listen. And you want to make sure that the one explaining how the engagement is going to work is you as the freelancer, as the service provider, because if you don't, it's going to be the client. And so a lot of you listening, especially if you're newer in your journey, you may think that if you're going to go consult with a Fortune 500 uh, bank or you know do some work for a company like that, you'd think, oh, that's just staff augmentation. You know, they, they have a way that they do everything. But no, not so much. I mean, well, yes, they will. <laughs> They'll have certain uh, infrastructure in place for that. But that doesn't mean that you have to work that way. So if you explain in discovery calls um, or pre-sales or sales calls, like I bill up front, um, I work in these ways, even some of those big companies that you wouldn't think would do it will say, okay, like if they want to work with you bad enough um, and you know, you have a bit of leverage in that fashion, especially, they will do it. And it may surprise you to learn that, but I've gotten, um, you know, Fortune 500 type companies or Fortune 500 companies, uh, governmental institutions to like pay up front, even though they said they didn't have a policy to do that. So um, take heart, like you may not, uh, especially if you need the business early on or what have you, you may not feel comfortable doing that right away, but you can get there. And that's going to help a whole lot in avoiding disasters because it's not just that you're going to de-risk it for yourself if you get payment up front or whatever. When you say, I have a process and this is how I work, you're kind of dictating those terms and they uh, follow your lead. You are telling them how you expect the engagement to go, what's going to be delivered when, and they're a lot less inclined to get picky, believe it or not, um, when you have set it up that way. So, yeah, I think um, that definitely, you know, 
dictating some of the terms of what you're going to do and sticking to those guns, even if it means that somebody walks away after a sales call, I think that's hugely important. So a lot of what we talked about so far has been sort of pre-engagement type stuff, like ways to avoid getting into projects that could go wrong. But how do you guys handle, like, have you had projects that have started to go off the rails that you've been able to successfully rescue and bring back to a good place where you reach a good resolution, where everybody's happy and nobody feels taken advantage of? And how did you do that? Well, I can speak to that a little bit. Um, So just for context, since um, the listening audience out there may not be as familiar, I personally have um, had a freelance practice in in the software. I was an IT management strategy consultant. These days, I run a business that um, does content marketing for companies that market to software engineers. And speaking in the capacity of, of that business where we do blog content, things like that for clients, we flat price everything, and we're um, usually starting off initially with a smaller engagement, and then we're kind of building on wins like I was talking about before. And what I've had is uh, sometimes if a client didn't understand something that well on a sales call, we get into it, we're doing some content, and then they start behaving in a way that I said up front, this isn't how we work, so kind of don't do this, and then they do it anyway. I've recovered from that, and well, one of the things that I'll often do is just say, here's a refund. I'm sorry, we don't work this way. But I've recovered from it at times by um, even developing like an additional offering or a different way of working where I say, listen, we got one of two ways we can go. I can give you a refund right now um, because this just isn't how we work. Or we can kind of scratch what we were doing before. I'll make you whole, like we'll, we'll do it your way on these couple of things we've done so far. But after that, if you want to keep doing it your way, that's an upsell. So it's really up to you. We can disengage. Um, we can do a couple of these your way and re-engage at a higher price level. And I've actually found that to be pretty successful, just kind of giving them that choice. Usually it'll result in a disengagement, but sometimes they say, yeah, I'm happy paying a premium to work this way. Um, so that can be one that uh, lets you redefine and kind of work the way they want, but without them walking all over you. So one thing that I've found helpful when projects kind of start to go south is surfacing to the client potential problems just as soon as I'm aware of them. And it's, it can be counterintuitive because when I first started out, my inclination was that my job was to protect the client from knowing that these problems even existed and that it's my job to just figure it out and shield them from all of that. But those problems often lead to either schedule slippage or scope creep, sometimes both being kind of the same thing. And in those cases, you know, if you want to get paid for that extra work, it's really best to get that information to the client as soon as you're aware that it's even a possibility that that's going to happen. And you don't have to, you know, raise that, oh, this is a terrible problem. The world's on fire. It can just be as simple as, hey, in looking into our integration with Service X, it turns out that they don't quite have the same mental model of the world as we do, and that's going to make this integration a little hairier than we thought. I'm still looking into it, still coming up with a plan for how we're going to address this, but I wanted you to be aware that this is potentially a problem that is that could affect the schedule. And doing that 
early gets people in a lot better mood than if you wait until, you know, the day before you're supposed to deliver this thing and you're trying to pull an all nighter and then you realize, Oh, this just isn't going to work tomorrow. You know, by that point you've let expectations get way out of whack and it's going to be a mad scramble if you can't deliver the thing on time. And if you address it way early and let them know that, Hey, the, there's a potential potential that the schedule is going to slip. They've got time to accommodate. Like everybody has time to be comfortable with that new information when it's not just right up against the deadline and people are already stressed and want the thing today. Uh, so that's one of my biggest things is just try to surface potential problems early and let people know, but definitely let them know that they're only potential problems and that you aren't even sure yet. Yeah, completely agreed with Jeremy on that. This is a skill that I am actively working on getting better at, but to me, it very much embodies communicating to the point where I feel a little uncomfortable with how often I'm communicating. And I think if I'm regularly hitting that point where it's frequent updates as we encounter, you know, hey, this has like a 70% chance of affecting the outcome, affecting delivery, affecting whatever, I'm or letting the client know about it, even if there isn't a next action for them to take just so they have a general idea of the shape and flow of the project. And it's not, as you put it, Jeremy, hey, the night before, let's do an all-nighter and we get there. And then 3 a.m. we realize, oh, no, there's no way we could get there. I guess I still have a long-term client. So my, my last project software client uh, that I've been working with for many, many years. And we've, I guess it's been like 10 years now, maybe even more. And we've had our ups and downs over the years. Overall, things were excellent, are excellent. But there have been occasional snags where communication wasn't so great or they weren't happy with the work that I was doing or with my employee. Um, and one of the ways that we managed to avoid these problems was by talking, making a schedule for speaking regularly. Uh, like a, a, a weekly half an hour meeting did wonders for our communication. Because then, like as you were saying, Jeremy, like things didn't sneak up on anyone. I could say, hey, we have to do X and Y and Z. We have six months, we have four months. We have two weeks, however long, but the, the fact that we could plan in advance, they also, I found, in having these meetings, were very happy to tell me what the direction of the business was, because here I am working remotely, not even close to their office. I don't really know what they're discussing, and they sort of forget that I'm not in all those discussions. So they can say, oh, over the next six months, we're planning to do X and Y and Z. How would you prioritize this? How should we work on this? What do we have to worry about in terms of budgeting? And it really, really, really smoothed out all those rough edges and communication problems and, and built a lot of trust among us as well or rebuilt the trust that we had had um, to such a degree that really, I think if I were to go to them, remind them that we had problems, not that I'm about to, they'd be a little surprised because things have been running so smoothly for so long. And like, how hard is it to find half an hour a week, even every other week? It doesn't have to be super, super often, but often enough that everyone looks forward to it and knows that they can update each other. Yeah, and I think another important thing to mention in having those sorts of meetings and communications with clients is that it just helps humanize everyone because when you're just emailing with people, it can be easy to fall into this mindset that you kind of have an adversarial relationship with your client where you just expect that they're going to ask stuff of you that you, you know, wasn't included in the contract and, you know, it can be easy to kind of forget that there's just a human on the other end of this thing. And that if you can relate to each other as people that greases the wheels for a lot of business conversations uh, and helps everybody give everyone else benefits of the doubt instead of the opposite of that and assuming, you know, worst 
intentions. So let, let's continue. I mean, Jeremy just said before, like, okay, we talked about the beginning, talked about sort of like the during. When things go wrong, how do you then sort of separate? I mean, it can be bad, like my facts threatening me with lawsuits and so forth. I don't recommend you do that to other people or that you be on the receiving side of such things. It's kind of bad either way. But how can you try to sort of extricate yourself from a bad situation, have a, as soft a landing as possible? I'll just start by saying, like, I, I had uh, done a few um, sort of uh, monthly retainer projects. Or I'd done actually, yeah, I'd done a bunch of monthly retainer projects. And they all sort of ended on a sour note where, like, oh, we don't have the money. We're going to stop. And so I started putting in my retainer contract, you have to give me one month's notice. And that tended to force them to sort of think ahead that even if things were souring, we had time to sort of wind things down and I could hand things off to other people there and explain what I'd done rather than, well, this is your last time here. Bye-bye. <laughs> uh, which definitely had happened once or twice. I don't have a good answer to this one. I wish I did. I'm curious to hear what other folks share. Um, so I don't know if it's a good answer exactly, but one of the things uh, that I've found when it comes to, because we've had um, situations especially with like the content business where we engage with somebody who uh, says things about our writers or does something in a way where I say, you know, I don't know if anyone out there's ever read the no asshole rule book, but like we have that about employees, clients, anybody. So I've had a few times where I shot down and said, I'm, I'm not doing business with anybody who behaves this way. We've had like contentious breakups at times. And what I've found is that there is nothing quite as powerful in landing as gently as possible in basically being able to say to a client, like, um, I'm willing to take an L not to de do deal with you anymore. So if there's something going wrong and you're issuing refunds or free services or something, you say, listen, we got to be done. Here's half your money back or whatever it is, whatever you can tolerate. That I think goes the farthest of anything and it's powerful. And frankly, I've said that at times and they go the other way and say, no, that wouldn't be fair. You know, here's more money. But that moment where you're saying to them, it would be worth me losing a bunch of money never to have to talk to you again. Um, that has an effect on people. So I can't guarantee that that's going to help. Like, especially in Reuven's situation, if they were like out to sort of screw you over in the first place, uh, they might say, perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. But I think that um, that does provide you a good chance uh, if you demonstrate that kind of, I have this skin in the game to get out of this relationship. So I, that's been my experience. Yeah, I agree. I think offering refunds if they've already paid you is far and away the easiest way to kind of just diffuse the whole thing and get out of it. I think when you're going to do that, it's probably when you're at the point that you're not really trying to salvage the project or mm -hmm. the relationship you're trying to make this person go away. Um, and like for me, with the big disaster one that I had to refund the ginormous fee on, uh, it was hard for me just to accept like from an ego standpoint that I was going to give all that money back and let it go. And it really, really felt like I had to eat some crow to, to just be okay with that and then say, come to terms with, hey, it's not worth my time and energy to fight these people because it is such a mess that my life will be better if I don't have to talk to them again and I will be able to concentrate on real work from clients that I enjoy working for who are going to pay me. I was very lucky that I was in a spot that it wasn't a huge financial disaster for me 
to have to refund that amount of money. You know, I had a little bit of savings and some runway to run it out. Um, but just the, just the emotional investment of letting that go was hard for me to swallow. Yeah. So the corollary to being able to or demonstrate that willingness to take a loss is you have to be able to take the loss. And um, Absolutely. that can get into a lot about like how you're booking revenue from your business and at what point um, do you take in revenue and then feel comfortable spending it? So if you anticipate that there's a risk of this, I would suggest to anyone listening out there that you keep that money sort of set aside, don't pay yourself with it or spend it on things in the business. If you think that you might have to, make a play like maybe wait till the outcome of the engagement is good and then you do things with that money if you can yeah people often you know non-consultants non-freelancers often gripe about oh they charge so much and that's ridiculous if you go through with them sort of the okay well there's a salary and there's both sides of the salary and there's taxes and social security or national insurance, whatever you've got in your country, on and on, on, you're also taking on risk. And so your, your uh, fees have to reflect downtime when you don't have clients, clients who won't pay, and this sort of thing where you have to refund money to people or partial refunds. I had something a number of years ago, back when, I, I still remember it was this company doing um, software for phones back when, and they said, you know, there's, they're going to start putting cameras on phones. It's going to be a really big thing. And I was like, whoa, what a brilliant idea. So I, I'm dating when this happened, but the big thing then was, of course, sending text messages, SMSs. And what they wanted to do was analyze the text in an SMS and then attach an emoji to it. Yes, folks, this is how billion-dollar companies are. Well, they actually didn't go very far. But... Um, the idea was basically they wanted me to write this software to do all the analysis and so forth. And, um, well, I wasn't feeling so well and I started up the testing system, went to bed, got up and discovered I'd sent some like a hundred thousand test SMSs charging them like, I don't know, a few pennies for each. And, uh, um, they were kind of upset <laughs> uh, to say the <laughs> least. And we had to figure out what we were going to do. And in the end we just sort of compromised. Also, like, long story short, my entire project was completely unnecessary. The whole point of my doing that project was because they wanted to put it on Unix systems, um, as most telecoms have. And uh, so we, loaded, we called up them up on, like, the day it was going to go online. Said, okay, we've got the system ready. What's your Unix system at? And they were like, Unix. We don't use Unix. We use .NET. And that was the end of my project, and that was, I think, the end of the company. Um, so they had bigger problems than paying, paying me or me paying them for uh, all those SMSs. But, um, wow. but yeah, like I, I had to eat some money there because I had spent it uh, unnecessarily, and that had to be part of the fees so that it wouldn't bankrupt me just making that sort of mistake. A hearty wow for me. That story, 16 different ways. Wow. Uh. Any, any last suggestions and thoughts before we head into picks, folks? So, I mean, I think thematically, like some of the things we've touched on that are you surface risks as early as possible, maybe even in the sales call. Like, for instance, when we're doing content marketing for a company, if, they're, um, if their website is really slow or they're doing other things that are going to actively hurt their SEO, I call that out before we even engage and say, you're going to have a harder time than another company would because these are the risks to us engaging. So the more you kind of move that to the left, if you will, the surface risks, the more regularly you communicate, like the good advice about setting up a regular checking call and all of that, like 
it's just really about, I think, tightening the feedback loop so that you're not just going off and doing app dev or whatever you're going to do for six months. And then you come back and say, hey, I'm only a third done. Like the sooner you can message everything and, and the more, um, I guess, frequently you can do that and the more you can build on wins and learn things early, the better. So I'd say when it comes to avoiding these terrible outcomes, the biggest thing is just learning as much as you can and telling as much as you can as early as possible is kind of my takeaway. Mine is slightly different than a takeaway, but for listeners who have run into issues like these or see themselves potentially running to them into the, in the future, a mastermind group. It could be one other person. It could be three people. It could be five people. Just a group of folks you could say, hey, I, this thing is happening. I'm not sure if it's me. I'm not sure if it's them. And I'm not sure if it's the process. Since that other person in your group isn't emotionally invested in this relationship or the situation, so much easier to say, yo, tell me if I'm the crazy one here or tell me if like, I just need to send a stern yet polite email to make sure we're on the same page. It really helps turn it from an internal crisis to, okay, I could see the next two steps to take here and get it moving forward. 100% on that. Uh, I was luckily in a mastermind group at the time when my disaster project went and it was a large part of them helping me get over that emotional hurdle and just saying, dude, give them their money back. You need to get out of this mess. And that helps a whole lot, you know, help me not just be in my head and dwelling in how I wanted to win the situation and instead some emotional detachment to say, no, you don't need to win this situation. You just need to get out of it. Sounds like that was very wise advice, if painful. Let's move into picks. Jeremy, what you got for us this week? Uh, so I don't really have a business-related pick this week, uh, but I do have an entertainment pick, uh, a show on Amazon Prime called Patriot uh, that we've really been enjoying. It's about a deep cover government operative who is also a folk singer and who regularly ends up at an open mic singing about whatever shenanigans he's been getting into. Uh, it's, kind of, it's a dark comedy. It's very funny. Uh, highly recommend it. That sounds really amusing. Eric, what do you have? Well, since I kind of tossed it out there um, during the show itself, I'll go with the, uh, the book, The No Asshole Rule. I don't know if we're going to dump uh, that on playback, but one of the things in the, in the book that the author talks about is insisting on that terminology. So that's actually the title of the book, and the author thinks it's important to mention that. It's really about not putting up with toxic people, whether they're employees, uh, superstar employees in your business, or clients, just anyone that like, it's not even just that life is too short, it's that those people tend to have uh, a real cost associated with them. So if they're an employee working for your organization, even if they're a superstar salesman or a really talented engineer or something like that, that they actually create more cost, you know, with all the HR and all the stuff they leave in their wake than they're worth. And it's a really compelling um, thing to go read. And I think it's important especially for listeners when it comes to your clients, like if, if people are abusive to you, you can always get more clients that, that you shouldn't, you shouldn't work that way. It'll take a psychic toll on you that like outweighs the revenue from the client. Very interesting. Kai, what about you? Absolutely. So uh, it's kind of related to the episode topic. I'm starting a reread of Sherry Walling's incredible book, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together, How to Run Your Business Without Letting It Run You. Truly an exceptional book uh, for any listeners in the audience. If you're a consultant, a day job employee, uh, a freelancer, a software engineer, a software owner, whatever, it's worth buying on Amazon. It's like four bucks right now. And it gives you 
a lot of great insight on how to stay sane and make sure you and your business thrive and you don't die to the uh, monsters hitting out there in freelancing. Oh, and the other one is uh, jumping off of the suggestion of having those uh, frequent you know, calls or check-ins with the client. I've started using the app Loom on my computer just to record like a short five-minute video. Maybe it's a screencast. Maybe it's just talking head. But I found it to be a good step just to record a short thing like that and send it over to the client. It's a little less intimidating than like, hello, here's a 2,000-word email about what's happening and easier for them to like, oh, okay, I looked at it. I get the gist. Great. Let's move forward. I understand the constraints. Huh. Very neat. Uh, my pick is a book that I bought, I'm guessing, about 20 years ago, started reading, said, oh, this is terrible, put it down, picked it up a few days ago, and how could I have been so dumb? And it is Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond. If you've never read this book, it is amazing, amazing. And it basically tries to answer the question, how is it that some societies in Earth's history managed to become technologically advanced and others did not? Um, and what sort of advantages, disadvantages do they have? And he says straight off, I'm not saying some people are smarter than others. The question is like, what did equally smart people find, have, do that allowed them to evolve into more successful, less successful uh, civilizations technologically? And then that led to the situation we're in today where there's a lot of inequality in the world. Brilliant, fascinating, drawing upon everything from evolutionary biology to technolo technology, to history, on, on, and on. So guns, germs, and steel. By the way, the germs part of the book, very, very relevant to today. It's like amazing how prescient a lot of what he wrote was. So uh, by uh, Jared Diamond, great stuff. I guess that's it for this episode. Thanks everyone for joining us. Jeremy, Eric, Kai, great as always. And we will see you next week on the Business of Freelancing Podcast.